Hi again, I'm Jack Lesenberry, and welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. This is sort of an evolution of the radio commentaries and the column I did for many years, so I hope you enjoy it and keep listening. You might also keep up with my writing and hear any previous podcast you missed if you go to my blog, Lessonbury Inc., that's Inc. is an ink pen, dot com, Lessonburyinc.com. I always say one of the best things about being a journalist is the interesting people you meet and the fascinating and complex stories they're often part of, and I'm here to share them with you. So please settle back and listen. Stay tuned afterward for my signature essay, and I hope you enjoy. If you do, please go to my website and subscribe. The price is absolutely free. Now for today's story. U.S. District Judge Avon Cohen is a Detroit native who's been a federal judge in Michigan for now slightly more than 40 years and has issued a number of historic rulings, including one case, the one involving the patent for the intermittent windshield wiper that ended up being made into a Hollywood movie. But he's not just in an ivory tower. There may be no judge in this nation who pays more attention to what's happening in the city or who's a more assiduous consumer of journalism. Nor is he afraid to praise journalists for doing something right or let them know if he thinks they're wrong. Prior to joining the federal bench, he was heavily involved in civic and Jewish affairs and the Democratic Party. Most stories about Judge Cohn these days begin with the fact that he's 95 years old. That's true, but instead of focusing on that, I want to find out how he sees the judicial system and the world from the perspective of having seen it all with an active mind for almost a century. Judge Cohn, thanks for making time for us. Thank you. You know, I think the average person really doesn't have a whole idea what being a federal judge is all about. And I wonder, do you think people have much of an understanding of the way the judiciary works? No, they don't. They don't have an understanding because they're not exposed to it. It doesn't touch them very often. Right. And, and therefore, uh, they have very little interest in it. Unless they get caught in the system, of course. It relates to something that the public does have an interest in, or they're personally involved in it. So you know, you were a sort of a hard-charging lawyer for many years before President Jimmy Carter appointed you to the bench. Was it a transition to go from a lawyer to being a judge? Yes. The biggest difference between being a lawyer and being a judge, I don't mean to be facetious. This was a lawyer. You have to track your time so you know how to charge your client. <laughs> As a judge, you don't have to do that because you get a paycheck every month. That's right. You get a fixed salary. But I suspect that a lot of good lawyers in private practice learn more, earn more per year than a judge on the bench. That's true, but there are a lot of uh, non-monetary rewards for a judge. First of all, you get your quarters. Right. You get your staff. Right. You get your work, and you're accomplishing some public good. So there's a lot of job satisfaction out of being a federal judge. Do you love it? I'd never use the word love, Jack. That's a very dangerous word because some of the things I do, you can't say are expressions of love. Right. For example, I may be having a session in court, and there's a young man who's gotten in trouble with the law, and I've just gotten done sentencing him to 20 years. Right. And his mother's in the courtroom listening and crying. And then I, I turn to someone, I said, you know, I really love this job. Right. The mother's response, naturally, would be, he loves this job. He just sent my son to jail for 20 years. So I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Right. 
It, uh, what's the hardest thing about it? Is it controlling the lawyers? Is it figuring out how to rule? Well, the hardest aspect of the job, I believe, is criminal sentencing. About 30% of my work deals with people who have offended against the law been found guilty or pleaded guilty and are punished. And conventional punishment is to lock them up for a year, five years, ten years. I just read a situation where a judge sentenced a man to 740 years. And there's a story that goes with that kind of sentence. The man looks at the judge and says, 740 years, how am I ever going to make that? The judge looks at him with a smile and says, well, just try. <laughs> He'll be eligible for parole in 550, probably. Yeah. But uh, it's, when someone sentences somebody to a sentence that's long past the normal lifetime of a person, is that just a way of ensuring they'll never get out of prison? Well, it's it's because of the, me the mechanics of sentencing. Different offenses, trying to run the circumstances, call for a sentence of different lengths of time. Some sentences... There's more than one crime of mouth, so there's more than one sentence. The sentence for crime A can be so many years. The sentence for crime B can be so many years. The sentence for crime B can be consecutive to the sentence for time A or right. concurrent. And some peculiarities of sentencing call for the second sentence to be consecutive. Right. And so, therefore, you add it on to the first sentence. It's a little unreal, but it's done. And after a period of time, you're, you're used to that sort of thing. You know, we have a, a federalist system. We have a you know, system of state courts, system of federal courts, where there's you know, sort of a lot of different state judges, of course, in Michigan can't run for, re they're elected, they can't run for re-election after they're 70. Federal judges are appointed for life. Which do you think is a better system? Well, they're, they're not appointed for life. They're appointed for good behavior. Right. But they're, in reality, they're appointed for as long as yeah, they choose to serve. Yeah. They have entirely different dockets for the most part. Different matters come to them under different sets of circumstances. The toughest job task for a judge, either federal or state generally, I believe, is coming up with what we would call a just sentence, mm -hmm. a sentence that is proportionate to the wrongdoing for which the offender is being punished. However, that's not always true because some sentences are set by law, and that is the federal side, Congress has passed a law that says if you're guilty of this offense, your sentence must be a mandatory so many years. And right. then above that, there are options. And there are occasionally sentences below the mandatory sentence for a special set of circumstances. Other sentences, other crimes, can call for a sentence that's totally within the discretion of the judge. The judge determines the number of weeks, months, years, as, as the case may, may be. Uh, in that kind of sentence, the judge's decision is generally not reviewable. 
In other words, the judge sets the length of time, and that's it. Occasionally, a judge will set a length of time that the government thinks is too low, and they'll appeal the sentence to a higher court. And that court usually affirms the judge, but on occasion, they decide the judge was either too low or the judge was too high. Ah. And they can adjust the sentence. So the mechanics are that if someone doesn't like your sentencing or your ruling, they would appeal it to a court of appeals that covers several states. That's right. Well, the federal system is divided into 94 districts. It's at the trial level. Right. Guam is a district. Saipan is a district. Most people don't know that. Puerto Rico is a district. Dissatisfaction with the decision at that level, for the most part, allows for an appeal to a regional court, of which there are 11 or 12, I believe. Their authority is over a group of states. For example, here in Michigan, we have two district courts. Right. We have a court in Grand Rapids that also sits in Kalamazoo, Traverse City, and the Upper Peninsula. We have a court for the eastern half of the state, which sits in Detroit. We have a couple of judges in Ann Arbor. We have a judge in Flint. We have a judge in Port Huron. And then we have a judge up in Bay City. Appeals from those courts goes to a court in Cincinnati called the Court of Appeals, which sits in judges of three, not one. Three, right. and their decisions don't have to be in that. Right, decisions it can be a two-to-one decision. Yeah, two-to-one. That court has authority or jurisdiction over appeals from federal courts in Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan. And if you don't like your decision, you can get there. You can appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, yeah, but it's not easy because the Supreme right. Court, for the most part, has a choice on what cases it wants to review. There are certain kinds of cases where they're obligated to review. But in general, when they take on a case to review, then that's when the decisions are final. But the vast majority of cases that you have, the buck stops with you, correct? That's right. So, do you agonize over decisions? No. No? I agonize. I wouldn't have been there <laughs> as long as I have. No, I have concern. I have some doubt sometimes that I did the right thing. But by and large, once you settle a case, once you've decided a case, once you've assessed a penalty, you go on to the, the, the next case. You were right if there's no appeal. It meant the parties, not that they were satisfied. Right. With your decision, but decided that they had gone accepted. to the end of the road and there was no point going any further. You can sometimes regret a decision. Subsequent affairs can show that you were wrong, and on occasion you can correct an error. Over 40 years, is there a case that stands out to you as being the most significant case? Well, it depends upon what area you're in. Well, you could throw out a couple or... Yeah, well, for example, I have patent cases. Right. Perhaps the most dramatic, interesting, 
the far reaching patent case I had, I had a challenge to what's known as the intermittent windshield wiper. Right. That you have a windshield wiper on your car that automatically operates when the windshield is wet. They made the movie Flash of Genius about that, yeah. I think. That case stands out. I've had criminal cases that sort of stand out. Usually, remember a criminal case more for the notoriety associated with the particular defendant. It may not be the seriousness of the crime. Right. It may not be something that affects a lot of people because the defendant has notoriety. Is there one in particular you're thinking of? Not really. I've had a couple which I thought I, I uh, imposed sentences that were somewhat dramatic that the public didn't see in the way I did. And uh, it was suggested I was too easygoing in my sentence. But there are so many of them that I can't say any one case stands out in my mind that I keep recall. Now, the intermittent windshield wiper case was quite a case because the inventor who uh, successfully prevailed against Ford was quite an eccentric character. That case had a certain uh, tension because here was an individual that invented a device that's on almost every automobile. Right. He did it himself. It was unique. There are certain inventions that, that are fundamental uh, Edison, the electric light bulb. Bell, the telephone. Right. Samuel Morris, the telegraph. And there are others, others like that that stand out. On the other hand, there are many inventions that are the result of the work of a lot of people, and you can't right. identify any. Television, for example. Yeah. That's right. In this case, he did invent that, and... The, and Ford, he charged that Ford and the other automakers had infringed on his patent. Yeah, well, you get a patent, and the Constitution says that the rights of people to their invention shall be preserved. If you come up with something, go through the process of the patent office, then you have the exclusive right to make or sell that object. Anyone who wants to make or sell it must get your position and pay you for the use of your patent. Uh, the pharmaceutical drug industry is a classic example. Uh, large pharmaceutical companies have hundreds of thousands of patents, and they're working, grinding them out, so to speak, and the doctor wants to prescribe a particular medicine, a particular pharmaceutical, and he describes one that's patented, and a royalty has paid. I had a case once, I think it was a case covering a drug treating people with diabetes. And it was patented. Patents been for 18 years. Now I think it's 20 years. For those 18 years that that product was being sold, Royalty was being paid. Right. When the patent expired, then any other pharmaceutical company could make it. And the, you didn't have to pay royalty to the original company, which held the invention. As I recall, 
within one year, the sales of the company on that item dropped $100 million. Wow. Wow. So the suddenly, not suddenly, patent expired. Therefore, the teachings of the patent, that's how you describe a patent. It teaches you. Teachings are no longer uh, exclusive. And anyone who had the skills and the facilities and the money can manufacture it. Can manufacture that product. And so, therefore, it's it's monopoly, so to speak. It's it's uh, if you have a patent, you don't have a, a monopoly. What you have is the right to exclude others from right. doing what you did, right? Unless they pay you for royalty. Exactly. You've been on the bench forty years. You've practiced law, I think, now for seventy years. Have you seen a vast change in? Americans' respect for law, vast change in how cases are litigated? No, I think Americans always respected the law. Some to a greater degree than others. Uh, it depends upon the political leadership, whether it's, its actions are such that encourage people after all, what is the law? The law, the law is the rules we live by. Right. And most people are law obedient, uh, follow the rules. Except for the speed limit now and again, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Well, there, there are some, uh, I don't mean to be political, but we have a president that doesn't show the same respect for the rules that others do. Right. Rules that he disagrees with. And there's a way of getting those rules changed if you disagree with them. But he, on occasion, decides he doesn't want have to follow a rule, and he doesn't. Now, does that worry you? I mean, we just, we have a presidency like no other we've had before, and it is sort of. Well, I can't say there's right. no other we've had. History teaches us we've had a, a number of presidents who chose not to follow the rules. Right. Because they've disagreed with the rules. Well, you could say Abraham Lincoln suspending habeas corpus, for example. Andrew Jackson led, led the move to expel Indians right. from lands in Georgia and Alabama and move them lock, stock, and barrel uh, westward so their lands could be operated by settlers and new immigrants. Which, in retrospect, is seen as sort of an atrocity, what he did. Yeah. And so Andrew Jackson is an example. Teddy Roosevelt once wanted authority from uh, the Congress to send the Navy around the world. Right. And he couldn't get it. So he says, that's fine. And I'll tell them to load up the ships with coal. And when they run out of coal, they'll just park their boat and wait for something to happen. Well, some of them got as far as Hong Kong. Right. Some Middle East. Some South America. There's a famous saying, someone disagreed with the president. One says, well, he's made his law, let's see if he can enforce it. That's right. But, but Americans, by and large, are law-abiding. Right. Does the federal court system still work the way it was intended to? I think so. Those that disagree with you said it works too much. It does too much. It exceeds the boundaries. Uh, a lot of what it does is discretionary. There's really no one to challenge it. 
and yet you can say it's wrong. Are there enough federal judges? Yeah, there's some problem of uh, misallocation of them. For example, we don't have enough judges in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and California to handle all of the uh, immigration cases they get. And on the other hand, we have other states. Well, here, yesterday we had a judges' meeting. We meet monthly, our judges. And we had a request for what I would call judicial assistance from a federal court in Chattanooga. They had a shortage of judges, and they asked us if we could lend them some judges for a period of time, help them with their overload. So will that happen? Will some judges go down? Well, that's what happens is when the younger judges, and those are more gung-ho, looking for work, those are the ones that usually take on those assignments. In many years at the bar, I've had cases from Riverside, California, from Toledo, Cleveland, Southern District of New York, from several different places in Kentucky. So it's a collegial system. Well, it's collegial, yeah. I mean, there's certain formality you have to go through to be reassigned from your home base. You have to get permission because there's a lot of bookkeeping involved. You get a per diem, you get your transportation costs, and so the system of moving judges about is highly regulated. I can remember uh, a couple of times where I went to Kentucky. In one instance, there was a, uh, a matter involving a power plant in western Kentucky, and uh, it was in receivership, and there was a feeling that there was some hanky-panky between one of the judicial officers and one of the parties involved in the plant. So all of the judges wanted to disqualify themselves because a colleague may have been involved. So I got the assignment to go down there. Uh, Another occasion, there was a criminal case where there was a rumor that someone threatened to assassinate the judge. Mm. So all the judges stayed out of that case. I can't imagine and why. And they sent me down to find this interesting. I came into a courtroom loaded with people and loaded with security people. There was a father and son who allegedly either directly or indirectly, had threatened the life of the judge. So I go out a complete stranger to all those people, and I identify the defendant, and we're going through the mechanics. The defendant says, I want to tell you something. I said, you want to talk to me? He said, yes. My lawyer is working with the government. (laughs) Well, you know right away there's something. Right. So... A second lawyer gets up and says, Judge, I think you ought to talk to this defendant, see what's bothering him. So I tell the marshals to bring the defendant into an ante room. Mm-hmm. And he sits down at one end of the table. I sit down at the other end of the table, two U.S. marshals. I tell the U.S. marshals to leave. 
They look at me, but they left. So I says, all right, what do you want to tell me? He said, really want to know? I said, yes, I want to know. Tell you the truth, I'm scared. Yes. <laughs> and I look at him and I says, well, that makes two of us. <laughs> and uh, changed the whole atmosphere, the whole environment. And I managed the case from Detroit. Wow. He was in Louisville. And uh, he eventually pled guilty because he was guilty, was sentenced. And there was no, no hardship, no scare, people scared, no security people in the courtroom with their guns. So just by, just by making a human connection, it's changed his whole yeah, attitude. That's it. right. It, uh, so sometimes, sometimes it's appropriate to remind people that a judge is also a human being. Well, I tell you, I have a philosophy that the defendant has as much right to be there as you do, meaning me. Right. And you've got to recognize that. And you've got to show some compassion. And uh, it works. At least it works with me. Is there a capsule summary of your whole philosophy as a judge? No, my philosophy as a judge is, I suppose I would use the word compassion. In uh, John Stevens' biography, the Supreme Court Justice Who Just Died, in the opening paragraphs of a book review of his biography, the writer says the one great quality he had is he could show compassion. Would you have liked to have been on the Supreme Court? Would you no. have? Why? Because there's a lot of writing, and you, you don't mix with people, and you've got eight other judges to contend with, and the excitement of the community doesn't permeate the, the, uh, so you like the mano a mano of an actual trial? Yeah, I enjoy the. Uh, I'm satisfied. You know, you also, uh, you also have always had a strong interest in history, American history, Michigan history. How do we make people more interested in? It? I mean, you are an ultimate history buff. You've had projects in history going on. You're, you've commissioned a, a unique map of. Uh, the Tocqueville's uh, voyages in Michigan. Um, did you ever think about being a historian? No. <laughs> you always wanted to go into law. I like what I'm doing. Good. That, that, that's the good. first day I walked into a federal courtroom, I had a, a suppressed desire to be a federal judge one day. Did you have, do you have an, uh, a model? Do you have a, either a mentor or a hero? Uh, yeah, there are, there are a couple of judges over the years that I've associated with in my court that I thought were examples of good judges. And in many instances, I tried to emanate uh, how, the, how they did things. Occasionally, when they were around, I went to them for advice, how they would handle a matter. Was John Fikens a major mentor to you? And John Fikens was, was judge now deceased, who I admired very much. He was very direct, had compassion, had some limitations. And uh, to some extent, I like to think that uh, I did things by and large the same way he did them. Although we had a difference in philosophy, political philosophy. He was a Republican. You were a Democrat. He had been a Republican. He had been. Yeah. 
But uh, he's, no. not, he's not a modern Republican, but he had been. No, he was a moderate. He'd be appalled. But, no, I mean, he was a mo- moderate Republican. He was not, uh, he, he's not a Republican of the present day. That's true. I think he would be appalled see the condition that the organized Republican Party has gotten themselves into. Are you worried about this nation? Are you worried no. about history? No. No. You think it's self-correcting? It, these things have a way of correcting themselves. The country went through a civil war. Ended up, cost a lot of money, many lives. Fundamental differences, they were eventually resolved, by and large, because there are still remnants of uh, the thinking of that period of time. Most Americans live their whole lives without seeing a president impeached. We're now looking at our third, people of our age, are, are looking at our third set of impeachment proceedings. Uh, is that remarkable? I would say yes. Does that say anything about the nature of the system? Yeah, it's a system that works. It's a system that works. It has its ups and downs. It's had its disagreements within the system. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, when he became president, put forth some ideas for progressive laws that he thought right. were important to uh, solving the economic deficits that he saw existed. And he had great trouble with the Congress. And some trouble with the Supreme Court. Had trouble with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sits at nine. Right. A good Supreme Court justice is one who knows how to count to five. Right. He became so frustrated with the court that he uh, suggested the court be enlarged to 15 some other hokey changes. Right. And that didn't happen. And eventually one justice started to change his mind on some things. And the crisis that everyone thought existed with the court in opposition to the president disappeared. And there's a famous uh, phrase that says, a stitch in time saved nine. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And, of course, some justices retired and he was able to replace them. They're retired. They're replaced. Some just... That was wrong. Uh, Felix Frankfurter is quoted as saying that uh, wisdom is in such short supply. The fact that it comes late is no reason to reject it. <laughs> I like that. That uh, when you retire someday, what would you like people to have said about your career? It's a difficult question to answer. I suppose I'd like folks to think about uh, Brandeis. Said once, you have to think about the other fella. Judge Lewis Brown. He didn't say fellow, he said right. fella, F E L O A. I suppose I'd like to think. Would you spend I'd like time? people to think that I had consideration for the other fellow. Well, I think that's about as, as, as good a summary as anybody could want. I certainly appreciate you making time. Any last comment you'd like to, anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to say about the nature of the legal system? I think it's a pretty good system. Functions reasonably well. There are humps in it. There are faults in it. We sometimes stumble, but by and large, we get from A to B without too much damage being done. Well, so we can sleep at night, I guess. Well, this has been fascinating, and if we had inspired anyone to learn more about the legal system and maybe even inspired some young person to consider it as a profession, I think it might have been worthwhile. So I want to thank Justice Cohn for taking the time to come to our studio here at 
Startup Nation and also thank anyone, everyone who donated to help fund the production costs of this podcast, including Jamie Powell Horowitz, who's an attorney in her own right, and Alice Ryan. If you too would like to help keep these podcasts going, I'd be thrilled if you could send a contribution to me via PayPal on my blog, lessonburyinc.com, or via snail mail to Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street, Plymouth, Michigan, 48170, or message me on Facebook or via my blog for more details. Again, please check out my blog. Click the button, subscribe to my writing and to my podcast, and listen to more episodes. Tell your friends, and feel free to let me know, too. This is Jack Lessonberry with my Politics and Prejudices podcast, and Federal Judge Avery Cohn, I'll see you again soon. Avon Cohen has added considerably to my education in the years in which I've known him, but two things really stand out. One is the saying that a judge who wants a case shouldn't have it. What that means it's essential that a justice should be impartial and disinterested, and if a judge has prior interest in a case, they may not be able to approach it with a completely open mind. He also told me once that he likes to be assigned patent cases. Now, a lot of judges hate those cases because they often involve a lot of complex and extremely technical details, and they can drag on for months or even years. Judge Cohen likes them, he told me once, because they force him to learn new things. To me, that's the very definition of a mind awake. While I'm not a neurologist, I can't help but think that this also may be one reason that he's still extremely mentally agile at an age when the vast majority of people are, well, dead. When I was young, I thought of judges, especially federal judges, the way I thought of the founding fathers. They were brilliant but bloodless beings up there on the bench, something like angels in heaven pronouncing from on high. Reality, of course, is very different. Judges are human beings. Avon Cohn was an active sportsman in his younger days, a tireless traveler, someone who took safaris to see African animals in the wild and visited ruins deep in the jungles of South America. He was and is a leading pillar of the Jewish community. He cares deeply about history was also active in local and state politics. In 1961, he was very nearly named Michigan's Attorney General when the post became vacant. However, the governor at the time picked another young lawyer the same age, Frank Kelly, who served in the job a record 37 years. Judge Cohen wasn't happy at the time, though when I asked him about this afterwards, he said that he has long since reconciled to what happened. Frank got the job he should have, and I got the one I should have, he said, and I think that's exactly right. I know both men fairly well. Frank Kelly was a distinguished attorney general, but couldn't match Judge Cohen as a legal thinker. On the other hand, Kelly is a superb Irish politician with the gift of gab. Judge Cohen can be a little irascible, and I'm not sure he'd been very electable. What is impressive, however, is that Judge Cohen knows and admits his weaknesses, and very few of us do that. He also thinks deeply about not only the law, but the human cost of any decision he makes. Over the years, he's received more honors and awards, and I suspect he knows but I suspect, also, the best and truest thing I could say about him was that he was simply a brilliant mensch, which means someone who can always be relied on to act with honor and integrity, a man who has responsibility fused with compassion. But just don't make him mad. I'm Jack Lessenberry. I'll see you next time. <laughs>